If you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out and turn with me to Joshua, the third chapter. As we continue in our storyline of the Bible series, we will be looking at the entire chapter, the third chapter of the book of Joshua. Then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. Verse number seven. Then the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the Ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from from shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priest bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priest bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows and, and its banks throughout the time of harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off, and the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. 
Um, let me, once again, um, as Pastor Derek has already done it, let me welcome you to um, this scattered worship gathering of the Point Community Church. And we are just, um, we're delighted that you have, uh, are, that you're watching us, that you're joining with us in on this gathering. Um, we don't know for certain how many more weeks that we will be just doing this, but hopefully it will not be uh, much longer. If you would, would you just take a moment and uh, just just say a word of welcome um, to one another? Um, for those of you that are joining us with Facebook Live, you can do that down in the, the comments section, but uh, an integral part of the church, it's the the church is the ecclesia. It's the saints who have been called out of the world and we've been called to Christ and we've also been called to one another. And that called to one another is difficult for us in this season, but we're making the best of it. And one simple way of you doing that is just by saying, hey, good morning. We're joining with you um, this morning. And again, it's a delight to have you. Um, we have we find ourselves in uh, Joshua, the third chapter. And so um, we're gonna unpack that. And so let us pray. Father in heaven, we give thanks to you for your word. For in it, Lord, you declare your power. You declare your salvation. You declare who we, who we are as sinners before you. And you declare who you are as holy and right and as good. And you declare to us the way in which we may be made right with you. And that way is through your son, Jesus Christ. And even here in Joshua, the third chapter, may your son, Jesus, may he reign and rule, and just may he shine. May he shine brightly, Lord. Lord, we're thankful that you have sent your spirit among us, the Holy Spirit of God. And may the Holy Spirit of God, may he be the one to draw us together. May he speak to hearts in this moment. In your name we pray, amen. Here's kind of uh, the big idea, if you will, of um, today's sermon. This will be what will kind of drive us through um, the text of Scripture today. And I know it's a lot. We're going to be unpacking it just maybe detail by detail, chunk by chunk. But here's the big picture. It is this. Look, what God, promise, what God promises, it should say, he performs. Remember that. It's just that simple. Look, what God promises... He performs. Remember that. Folks say that the key to success in real estate is just simply three things. It's uh, location, location, location. And the key success to understanding and rightly dividing the word of God, it's three things as well. And it would be context, context, context. That for us to rightly understand God's word, we must rightly discern and understand the context in which it is written, the context in which it's coming from. That's why for us, we usually, generally, and every other year but 2020, we start in a book of the Bible. We start with uh, chapter one, verse one, and we work our way through. And even though right now we're taking bigger chunks of the Bible and we're working our way through the entire storyline of the Bible, um, even though we're doing that, we still want to keep the text in its context. And so I want to bring out for us um, in this sermon this morning, I'm going to bring out actually seven contextual uh, details that are so important for us in understanding what God is doing 
in Joshua chapter three. And so, yes, that's right, seven, that's not a joke. Sometimes I'll say, I got 15 things, and then I'll back up and say, just kidding, I only got three. I've got seven, and so we're gonna roll through them rather quickly, but the first one we could say, uh, we'll say it like this. Uh, I'll, I'll quote a, a, a song from Andrew Peterson. The first detail that I wanna bring out would be said, said like this in that goodbye, Moses. Um, Deuteronomy ends, and Deuteronomy ends with the death of Moses, and Moses is dead. Now, listen, we, we can't overestimate the importance and the influence of the man Moses had on Israel and the role that he plays even in the Bible. Like it would be, um, I, I've been trying to think of an allegory for us as Americans, and it's, uh, it's impossible Moses was the national leader. And I know in my lifetime, I think we've had eight presidents as national leaders. And so these people, they're in their 40s and they've only had one um, national leader and his name is Moses. But more important than just being a national leader, um, like we would think of as a president, um, he's a spiritual leader. Um, He's greater than even Billy Graham among the people. Not only is he a spiritual leader, but he's the financial leader in some regards. When the people have run out of food or, the, or they've run out of water or they've needed something, they've gone to Moses and Moses has prayed and interceded on their behalf. And then uh, God has delivered and God has, has done what they have asked. He was their intercessor. He was their mediator. As we talked about last week, he represented the people before God and God before the people. And now Moses, the leader that's led them out of Egypt, the man that Moses was given a staff by the Lord. And this staff, um, it, it showed it was an emblem of the power of God. This staff at one point, uh, it, it, Moses threw it down and it became, a, it became a snake that ate Pharaoh's magician snakes. It was a, a picture of power that, so that when Moses lifted it up over the Red Sea, the Red Sea parted. When Moses struck a rock, water flowed out of that rock. I mean, that's to show you the importance of Moses. Moses is the one who has given them the law at Mount Sinai. He's instructed them on how to build the tabernacle, the ark, to set up the sacrificial system. Moses is the one that as Moses held his arms up, as the people of Israel, the children of Israel were in battle, that as long as Moses held his arms up, the children would win against the Amalekites. And whenever he'd begin to drop them down, they would begin to lose to show the power of Moses, the influence of Moses, the importance of Moses, and now Moses is dead. He's led them to the banks of the Jordan. What lies on the other side is a land flowing, the promised land, it's flowing with milk and honey and giants. Fortified cities, strong people are on the other side and Moses has only taken them so far, as far as the Jordan, now he's dead. And they're going to have to go over without Moses. But as Andrew Peterson saying, hello, Joshua. Joshua is the new leader. Now, Joshua wasn't the name that his father gave him when he was born. His name was actually Hoshea, which means salvation. But Moses, Moses changes it to Yehoshia, which is Joshua. And it means that the Lord is salvation. The Lord is a savior. It is uh, Yoshia in Hebrew, Joshua in English, and Jesus in Greek. That's right. Joshua, his name is Jesus. Um, Moses, who represents the law, 
Moses could only take them to the brink of the promised land, but it is, it is Joshua, it is Jesus who will carry them off and take them into the promised land. Let that settle in. That's what we're talking about here. That's the importance of, of both Moses and now the importance of Joshua. Joshua is, um, he's the Chuck Norris of the Old Testament. I love the, the person and the character of Joshua. Joshua was born in a tent in the wilderness that he fashioned with his own hands. Now that's not true, um, but that's to kind of show you the power of Joshua. That death once had a near Joshua experience. That's what we're talking about when we talk about Joshua. And we'll see that um, even again next week as we talk more about Joshua. The third um, important detail, contextual detail that I wanna bring out, Moses, Joshua. Now let's talk about the Israelites. The Israelites, because of the death of Moses, because of what stands in front of them, they are rightly afraid. Fear is gripping in their hearts. Even though they're coming into the promised land, the land that they've heard about for generation after generation after generation, they're finally coming into that, but yet fear has gripped their hearts. That's why Joshua gives his first sermon is actually found in uh, Joshua 1, uh, verses 6 through 9. And Joshua's first sermon is this, to be strong and courageous. He's reminding the children of Israel of their strength and their courage. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be very strong and very courageous. This is the word of God coming to Joshua. Joshua is giving the people there. Be careful to do all that the law that Moses uh, my servant commanded you, do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. Now notice, um, oh, for then you will make your way prosperous and for you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Again, he says, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you may go. Now notice what Joshua points out in that sermon, that it's not the strength of your military. It's not the strategy of your military. It's not your power. It's not your might. But what does Joshua do? He points them to the book. He points them to the law, meditating in this, Knowing this, obeying this is the key to success. And as my grandfather would have tell, told me, he would have said, son, point them to the book. And in the book, they'll see the power of God and the provision of God, the presence of God, the promise of the presence of God is with them. That's the keys to a good sermon. And what a great sermon it was. And the people of Israel needed to hear them. He points them to the book. And in the book, the book points us to the power of God in our lives. Um, the next thing that I wanna talk about is the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I can't believe we've made it all the way to Joshua chapter three and we haven't talked about the Ark of the Covenant. The instructions on how to build the Ark of the Covenant was given all the way back. It was given to Moses at Mount Sinai and he's instructed them. Now, you've got good news. You've got a little bit of an expert in me when it comes to the Ark of the Covenant. Not that I've studied a ton about it from the Bible or from theology, but I have watched Raiders of the Lost Ark a hundred times. In fact, I spent two-thirds of my childhood pretending to be Indiana Jones looking for the Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, looking for the Lost Ark. And so I know a ton about the Lost Ark. The Ark of the Covenant, it was a little wooden box that was covered over with a golden veneer. 
Um, it was about the size of maybe uh, if you have an ottoman in your in your living room, an ottoman, a big a bigger ottoman that's in front of your couch, um, like we do at our home. It's about that size. It was made under the command of God, and it was made to be a physical uh, symbol of the presence of God. More than just um, showing them the, the symbol of the presence of God with them, even more than that, it was a miniature depiction of the very throne room of God. On top of the Ark of the Covenant, there were um, golden angelic beings called cherubim with their wings spread out. In Isaiah chapter six, when the prophet Isaiah will be taken up into the very throne room of God, he'll have a vision and he'll see it. Guess what Isaiah sees there? The same angelic beings, the, the cherubim that are covering with their wings, they're covering their, their, um, their mouths. I believe it is. Um, in between the wings on top of the Ark of the Covenant, in between the cherubim's wings, um, there was the mercy seat of God. And that's the place where the blood of the sacrificial lamb on the day of atonement will be, will be poured out. It'll be poured out on the top of the Ark of the Covenant in between those wings on the mercy seat. Inside of the Ark are different elements that God has commanded them for, for them to collect and put in there. There is the uh, Ten Commandments that have it written on the stone tablets. There's uh, Aaron, um, his rod that is budded. There is a jar of manna that's been placed inside of there, and it all represents God's, again, God's plan and God's power, God's provision, God's purpose for his people, and ultimately, God's presence. The Ark of the Covenant is a holy thing. That's why in Joshua 3, you see social distancing happening there. You see Joshua commanding them saying, hey, the Levitical priests are gonna carry this. And the way that they carried it where there were rings on the side and they would attach poles to the rings and the Levitical priest will hoist it up on their shoulders and they're gonna carry the Ark of the Covenant. But the rest of you jokers, you need to stay not just six feet back, you need to stay 2000 cubits back. So that could be as much as a half a mile back. Not only because the Ark of the Covenant was holy, but so that the people could stand back and stand far enough back so that they could keep it in their vision. Notice what Joshua tells them. Joshua says, when you see the ark moving, it's a sign that God himself is moving. Follow it. And the next thing that I wanna point out is the span of time, three days. Notice he says, he tells the people in three days, the ark of the covenant will begin to move. Now, I wanna proceed here with caution. There are those who want to ascribe meaning to different days and to different numbers and different spans of time all throughout the Bible. And oftentimes, if we're not careful, we could get in trouble. We can make a text of scripture mean what, it never, what it's never meant by doing this. But there are times when numbers are used and it's, it's undeniable that they have some sort of significance. We could say that about the number of seven as a number of completion. We could say that about the number 40 or for 40 years or 40 days that we've seen through the Bible. We can also say that about the span of time of three days. That three days, what it symbolizes is it symbolizes a, a period of waiting and then God is going to do something. God is going to do something big, something huge, something miraculous, or, or some, he's gonna show up in some significant way. That back in um, Genesis 22, Abraham takes his son Isaac on a three-day journey to the mountain where under God's 
instruction he is to sacrifice his son. It's a three-day journey. That's not accident. The, uh, in, the, in the Exodus, the children of Israel, they, they camp out at the base of Mount Sinai. Moses goes on the top and they wait three days before God descends and meets with Moses to give him the law. Jonah is in the belly of a whale for three days. And when we get to the New Testament, we see this as well. Jesus is in the tomb, the belly of the earth for, again, three days. God is saying here, there's a period of waiting and then God moves, God shows up in a, in a big way. During those three days, the people are to consecrate themselves. They're to sanctify themselves. They're to set themselves apart. It's a time of preparation. He's saying that in order for you to enter the blessing that God is giving you, it is necessary for you to yield yourself to God in a, in a fresh and in a decisive way. The next detail that I wanna point out, in fact, I think the last um, detail that I wanna point out, at least a contextual detail is notice where they are. They're in the Jordan River. Now, Again, same way with the numbers. We have to be careful here. We have to proceed with caution, but there are some times when you look at, especially when you're looking at the entirety of the Bible, there are, there are, there are even places of geography that have theological significance in them. This isn't always true, but oftentimes it is true. One author said this, he says that God put both Israel's sin and God's salvation on the map. And what I mean by that is there are places where God names them certain things and names have huge significance. We've already seen this in, uh, in our journey so far. We saw it with the children of Israel in a place by the name of Mara, which means bitter. It's an oasis that had bitter water, but also in that it's a place where um, the children of Israel turned bitter. They turned bitter towards God. They've turned bitter because there's no water there to drink. There's another place, a place called Meribah, and that place is a place of quarreling. It's where the people um, quarreled. They quarreled with one another. They quarreled with Moses. They quarreled with Aaron. And ultimately, they quarreled with God. And so God names that place Meribah, which means quarreling. There is geography that oftentimes has a theological um, message associated with it. You see this true with Egypt, with Mount Sinai, with the Red Sea. And it's true here about the Jordan River. And here is the message that the Jordan River will communicate to us. The Jordan is a place where the old gives way to the new. That the Jordan is like a liminal space where there will be a transition from what was to what is. What was then, what is now. We see this in Joshua 3. They've had the promise. They've had the waiting. Now there's crossing over the Jordan River. And as they cross over the Jordan River, it's a new generation, a new people, a new, a, a new leader in Joshua. And they're heading to a new land. They're leaving behind the old. They're leaving behind an old generation that's fallen under the judgment of God. They're leaving behind the wilderness. They're leaving behind manna. They're leaving behind Moses. They're leaving behind their waiting and they're coming into fulfillment. And as they do, they cross through the Jordan River. Now, again, this isn't the only time this will happen. We'll see it again in 2 Kings. I don't know that we'll get to preach it, so I'll mention it here. But in 2 Kings chapter 5, there's a, uh, there's a Syrian general by the name of Naaman. And Naaman is struck with leprosy. And leprosy in that time, that's a, that's a death sentence. And so he's fearful. He's a powerful man, an influential man, and he has a leprosy. 
and he reaches out to the king of Israel. The king of Israel says, hey, there's nothing that I can do. But the prophet of Israel, the prophet of God in that time, godly man by the name of Elisha, and Elisha sends a word to Naaman to go into the Jordan and to wash yourself seven times. Now, Jordan's filthy in this time, and it's not thought much of. And this influential man, important man, is going to go do it. And as he does it, God miraculously brings healing. His leprosy is washed away and his skin is made new, but not just healing. Not just healing of his physical body takes place, but what we also see is we see Naaman confess that the God of Israel is the God of heaven and of earth. And what we see there in the Jordan is we see a washing away, a washing away of the leprosy, a washing away of his past, a washing away of, of, of the sentence of death, and even the washing away of paganism. And it gives way to what is new. What's new is new skin, skin like a baby skin, and also a new confession, a confession of of, of, of that God is the God of all. It's worship. The same thing happened just previous in 2 Kings um, to this story in Elijah and Elisha. Elijah is the prophet of God outside of Moses. He may be like the most influential and important prophet, at least up until this point. And Elijah, as the prophet of God, he's about to be taken up into heaven. And Elisha, his young protege, is about to take over. And Elijah takes Elisha to the Jordan River. And Elijah rolls up his cloak. And then he does, what he does is he strikes the Jordan River. And you have Joshua 3 happening again. You have the waters parting. You have the sea, the, the river drying up. And you have Elijah and Elisha crossing over, walking over on the other side. And then Elijah is taken up into heaven. It's a transition for Elijah from an earthly life to a heavenly life. And it's also a transition of Elijah as the prophet of God, as the mantle falls now on Elisha. Elisha is now the prophet of God. The Old Testament, it will close out with the last prophet of God being Malachi. And the Old Testament will, will end with these words from the prophet Malachi. Behold, I will send Elijah to you before the great and the awesome day of the Lord. The Old Testament ends and then you have 400 years of prophetic silence. There's no prophet in the land for 400 years. At the end of the 400 years, a new prophet shows up, a man by the name of John the Baptist. And John the Baptist shows up and John the Baptist is doing his ministry and his ministry begins with what? Him baptizing. And where is he baptizing? He's baptizing in the Jordan River. It is, it is God declaring this new thing is happening and Jesus comes. And John the Baptist baptizes Jesus in the Jordan River. And in this, it is God declaring that the, the old dispensation of the prophets is ending and a new dispensation has begun centered around my son, Jesus. In fact, the writer of Hebrews will begin his letter with this long ago that at a sundry times and in various ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But now in these latter days, he has spoken to us through his son. That is what is being declared in the early parts of the gospels as 
John is baptizing Jesus. Now hold that thought as we think about even the old covenant being given away. The law of Moses, the law, the old covenant being given away to the new covenant of what God is doing in his son, Jesus. Here's the principle that emerges in Joshua 3 that is so important for us as New Testament believers. Here it is. It is the big idea. It is this. It is for us to look. Starts with us look. But just as the children of Israel were told for them to set their gaze upon the Ark of the Covenant, for it, it is an emblem. It symbolizes the very presence of God. Look, set your gaze upon. It's not just it, but upon him. The Ark of the Covenant is to never be an idol for them to worship. It is always to be an emblem of the presence and the power of God among them. And what he's saying here is set your gaze upon God, not upon a man for that man is dead, Moses. Don't set it upon me, even though God is going to establish me as the new prophet, as the new leader, but I'm not to be the center figure. I'm not to be the focal point. God is to be the focal point. All of the prophets, that their job was to be like an arrow pointing the people of God towards God. The people of God are to always be laser focused in on God. The writer of Hebrews tells us as New Testament church, he tells us to look to Jesus. He's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Robert Murray McShane, he said, for every one look to self, take 10 looks to Christ, that Christ is the object of our faith that saves us. In Numbers 21, while the children of Israel are still wandering around in the desert, they get to a mountain, Mount Hor. And at Mount Hor, they grumble and they complain and they do what they do so often. And God sends his judgment upon them. And in this particular time, God's judgment comes upon them in the form of fire, fiery serpents. There's snakes, venomous vipers. These vipers are biting the children of Israel and the Israelites are, they're dying and they're perishing. And the people realize that this isn't accidental that this is happening, but it's happening because we are under God's judgment. And the people repent. They repent to, to, before Moses and they repent for God, before God. And God um, sends instructions to Moses. God tells Moses, he says, I want you to do this. I want you to craft. I want you to make a, a serpent made out of bronze. And then what I want you to do is I want you to lift up that serpent on a pole. And as the people will look upon that serpent, they will be healed. They'll be healed of the venomous viper bite from them by simply an act of faith. And that act of faith is to look. When Jesus shows up on the scene, Jesus draws from that picture and Jesus tells the people of Israel that just as Moses in the wilderness lifted up the brazen serpent on the pole, and the children of Israel looked upon it. So must the son of man, so must I, that's a term for Jesus. So must I be lifted up. Jesus will be lifted up and he'll be lifted up on a pole. He'll be lifted up on a cross where we look and as we look, we're healed from the venomous viper bite of sin. We're healed and we're made new and we're made whole in this. We cross over as we look to Jesus. We cross over from condemnation to salvation. In fact, Charles Spurgeon, Charles Spurgeon, uh, 
famous preacher. If you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, it'd be a great time for you to get introduced to him. Charles Spurgeon tells about his conversion. He tells about his conversion in this way. He says, now when I was 15, in January of 1815, I was walking to an unnamed place of worship in England, and I got caught in a snowstorm. And I turned and I went down Artillery Street and I walked into a small primitive Methodist church, not as usual church. And the pastor that took the state, that took the pulpit that morning, he wasn't the usual pastor. In fact, he was no pastor. He must have been a farmer. He was a very thin looking man, Spurgeon wrote. He went into the pulpit to preach and Spurgeon quickly felt that this preacher must have been really stupid. Apparently, he could not even rightly pronounce the words of his text, which his text was simply Isaiah 45, 22. Look unto me, the text says, and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth. He said the man began with these words. My dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It is just that look. Well, a man need not to go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. Anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, he said in his broad Essex, many on you are looking to yourselves, but it's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Spurgeon said that after about 10 minutes, there was only about 12 to 15 people present in the congregation. And then the preacher fixed his eyes on me and he spoke directly to me. He said, young man, you look very miserable. Then he lifted his hands and he shouted, young man, look to Jesus. Look, look. Look, you have nothing to do but to look and to live. And at that, Spurgeon later wrote, I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought, like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up and the people only looked and they were healed. So it was with me. I've been waiting to do 50 things, but when I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I almost could have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And at that moment, I saw the sun and I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them, of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith, which looks alone to him. It starts with looking. And as we look to Christ, then we are reminded of what he promised. He will, he will perform. That's what's happening here. God has promised the children of Israel a land, a promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now he's taking them to that land. God has promised this to you. What you must do is you must lay hold of it. And we, even in this text, we see the, the principle of faith occurring here. 
that what happened first? Was it first that the waters parted? I mean, it's not even that the waters are parting. What's happening here is, is here that the, the waters are being dammed up, way upstream, and the waters are swollen. This isn't a little creek. This isn't even the size of Elkhorn Creek. This is a swollen river during this time. And yet what happens is the, the priests, they, they put their feet in the water and as their toes touch the water, that's when the flow is stopped. And it's the principle of faith. We see that in the third chapter in the 13th verse. When the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth shall rest in the waters of the Jordan. The waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing and the waters coming down from above shall stand still in one heap. What God is teaching us there is we look to Christ and then we exercise faith. We exercise faith to believe that he will perform what he has promised. It is by faith that we lay hold of the promises of God. It is no doubt who is performing it. It is God who's performing it, but there's always a component of faith to be exercised here. And then as you do that, then you look back and you do, lastly, you do this, you remember that. After crossing the Jordan, Joshua will have in the fourth chapter of the book of Joshua, we see this, that what Joshua has the people do is he has 12 men come forward and the, uh, to represent the 12 tribes, one from each tribe, and they go and they gather huge rocks, not little pebbles, not a pet rock, but these huge stones that they hoist up on their shoulders and they take these 12 stones, they take them to the next place where they will camp out that night and they, they put them down, they lay them down, they heap them up. And he says that they are rocks of remembrance. They're a memorial is what you're building here. In chapter four, verse 21, he says this, and Joshua said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? What's this 12 rocks piled up over here on the other side of the Jordan, between Jordan and Jericho, what do they mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Listen, what Joshua 3 and 4 is for us. It is a living illustration. It is a living example, as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, written for our benefit. It's a living example of the salvation that the Lord is doing. The pattern is simple. It's to look that what God has promised and what he has promised is salvation through his son. He's promised the end of judgment, the end of condemnation, that as we look to Jesus, we look with eyes of faith, we believe, we step out into Christ and we experience the new thing that Jesus is doing in our own lives. That's the declaration of baptism. The declaration of baptism is we are united to Jesus's baptism in the Jordan River. Every creek, pond, lake, pool, baptistry, horse trough, 
That's what we used to baptize here at the Point Community Church. We used to baptize folks in a, in a cow trough, in a horse trough. Every one of that is a picture and an illustration of the Jordan River. It is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Oh, some of us, we need to be reminded of that. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God. It is us passing away from death unto life, us passing away from judgment into forgiveness, condemnation into there is therefore now no condemnation into justification from the old heart and the old attitudes and the old life of sin into a new life with new affections and new loves and new desires. It's us passing away from paganism and idol worship, passing, passing into, just like Nahum, into worship and a confession of who Christ is, of who Jesus is. That what Christ has promised, salvation, eternal life, he will perform. As Paul writes in Philippians, the first chapter, the sixth verse, he who began a good work in you, he is faithful to bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. It's a good work. It's a work of salvation. That is what Christ is doing in our lives. And we remember that. Some of you may be experiencing that as you look, as you do what Spurgeon said. Some of you have done a thousand things, a million things, a hundred things. Look, you've done all of these things, but you've never looked. You've never looked to Jesus. And now maybe for the first time with eyes of faith, you're, you're looking You're looking at Christ. He's bringing salvation to your soul. He's changing you. And others of you, as you look again, for every one look itself, take 10 looks to Christ. As you're taking a new look at Christ, we remember. We remember that. We don't have memorial stones, but we have a memorial meal. It's an opportunity to remind ourselves that Jesus is the rock of our salvation. Jesus is the stone that the builders have rejected, who's been lifted up and crucified for us. It is around this memorial meal an opportunity for us as parents to tell our children what this means, what this meal means, what this moment means. And it means this, that Jesus is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the earth. That Jesus is the serpent lifted up that heals us from the venomous viper bite that Jesus is the Jordan River that washes away the sentence of death and the sickness of sin from our very souls, that Jesus is that. We get to remind our kids as we come to this table, looking forward in a couple of weeks to taking the Lord's Supper again together as a body. As we remind ourselves and we remind our children Christ's body broken for us, Christ's blood shed. It's an opportunity for us to remind ourselves, to remind our kids that Jesus is the Savior of the world. And with his blood, he's ransomed many, some from every tribe, nation, and tongue. May Jesus be praised. Let's pray. Jesus, we remember you lifted up. Jesus, we look to you. We look upon you. We set our gaze upon you. 
We don't set our gaze upon COVID-19. We don't set our gaze to governmental leaders. We don't set our gaze upon a man. We don't set our gaze upon any of these things. We set our gaze upon you. And we remind ourselves that what you have promised, you will perform. What you have promised us is eternal life and you will perform that. You will perform that in your people. Here you are performing. You are taking your people to to your place. God's people in God's place under God's blessing and rule ultimately will culminate as your church is brought into your place. The foot of the throne of Jesus Christ under your blessing and your salvation and your rule. And together we'll sing. With your blood, you have ransomed many. Jesus, ransom some even today. Ransom some even today. Remind us of who we are. In your name we pray. Amen.